The following podcast is a production of the Factual Data Creations Facility. Welcome to the OFNT Podcast, episode 188, which I'm calling the I'm Officially Old episode. Yep, my so-called landmark birthday was celebrated last Thursday. It was nice and quiet, the way I like my birthdays, in sharp contrast to many previous ones I've had. How do you feel, you may ask? No. Well, I feel just about every second of my age. Yes. Well... Let's get this episode rolling. Before we start, I have a correction. In last week's rant about the three illegal immigrants and their crime spree, I mentioned that ICE had a retainer on them. I should have said a detainer notice on them. Geez, I spent 25-plus years working for Customs and Border Protection, so you'd figure I would have gotten the term right, wouldn't you? Tech News After the annual Apple iPhone event, the tech press space was abuzz with the rumors of another Apple event, or at least an announcement. These pundits predicted a new A16 chip-powered iPad Mini, an M2-powered iPad Air, and an M3-chipped iMac. But all they got was a stupid Apple Pencil. Yeah, last Wednesday, Apple announced an entry-level Apple Pencil that will cost $79. This new version is the cheapest Apple has introduced, with the original first-generation Apple Pencil costing $99, and the second-generation going for $129. Apple says that this new model offers the same low latency and tilt sensitivity as the second generation, but what you don't get with this new, cheaper version is the real story here. There's no pressure sensitivity, wireless charging, or double tap for switching between tools. Now, you can magnetically attach this new pencil to compatible iPads, and it does support the hover gesture, which of course is the darling of all the ads I've seen since the release of the first generation pencil. So basically, the only feature you gain over that original model is the magnetic attachment ability, albeit without the charging capability of the more expensive Generation 2 model. The new pencil is compatible with all iPad models that have a USB-C port versus the apparently defunct, well, almost defunct, Lightning port. The Magic Keyboard and Mouse still rock the old Lightning port, as of this recording anyway. Speaking of the... USB-C port. The new pencil is charged by way of a concealed USB-C port, which you expose by pulling on the top of it. I don't plan or plan on using an Apple Pencil because I'm not an artist. Well, I've been called a BS artist, but that doesn't require the use of anything but my loud mouth. (laughs) And I don't take notes using my 11-inch iPad Pro. I prefer doing that with my iPhone using its keyboard, of course. Apple's AirPod Pro's second generation finally received the promised adaptive audio and conversational awareness features within a firmware update last week. 
Both features were announced during September's iPhone event. Adaptive Audio blends transparency mode and active noise cancellation together based on the user's environment, while conversational awareness will allow you to start a conversation while listening to music, reducing the background noise and amplifying the voice of the person standing in front of you. This also works while you're doing things like watching a movie or television show. I had forgotten about these features and thought there was something wrong with my AirPods when the volume of the media I was consuming at the time dropped suddenly when my lovely wife was attempting to gain my attention. I thought it was a bug because it really didn't work that well. Since then, I've found out that the AirPods will take time to learn your environment and will improve over time. Or will it? Other features introduced in this update were using the stem of the AirPods to mute your voice during phone calls and a much-needed improvement with automatic switching. Automatic switching was long ago touted as being able to automatically switch AirPods between Apple devices without having to enable them by using the device's Bluetooth setting app. In practice, this feature didn't work so well. Since this latest update, I can attest to automatic switching being much improved. It's still not perfect, but it's much better. Google's latest job cuts were pretty targeted and reportedly included several director decapitations, reads the headline from Business Insider. The job cuts were made to streamline the company, targeting those considered by the company to be in level 8 or 9 roles who make at least $1 to $2 million per year. Wow. If this was considered middle management, I guess I picked the wrong career path. <laughs> It appears many of these employees work within Google's news aggregating service, Google News. Why would you need as many people within the news division when you just get your news items and talking points directly from the current administration anyway? What? I jest. No, not really. Google News VP Shalish Prakash noted that Google had hired too many people during the pandemic. China. And now there's a reckoning. Google had laid off a massive 12,000 employees back in January, so compared to that, this round of cuts were minuscule, at least number-wise. Now, salary-wise is a different story altogether. Google hasn't been alone in the reduction of tech workforces, with Microsoft, Amazon, and others massively reducing employee numbers this year. Only Apple has avoided mass redundancies so far. Hmm. It's as if these companies thought the pandemic China. was just going to last much longer than it did. Kind of makes me wonder. Well, the biggest tech story of the week was release of the OnePlus Open Foldable Phone, with headlines like, The only foldable phone that doesn't compromise, and The first foldable phone that doesn't suck, and others along that line. Tech sites claim that upon unfolding the open phone, you're greeted by the biggest, brightest screen of all the current foldable phones. The form factor of the OnePlus Open is lauded for being normal and not a weird shape like Samsung's and Google's offerings. The outside screen is also bigger than other foldable phones. The cameras on the open are said to be the best of the form factor. Specs are as follows. The external screen measures 6.3 inches, while the unfolded inside screen is 7.8 inches. Both screens are capable of a 120Hz refresh rate. The OnePlus Open Phone is powered by the latest and greatest Snapdragon 8 Gen 2 chip. The base model rocks 16 gigs of RAM and 512 gigs of storage. 
Both front and rear cameras feature a wide-angle and ultra-wide-angle 48-megapixel lenses and 64-megapixel 3x zoom telephoto lenses. The battery is a smallish 4800 milliamp, so that might be of concern for some users anyway. The reported cons of this phone are that it's heavy. The camera bump is ginormous. The dust and water resistance is low, and the durability of the phone was questionable. How much will the OnePlus Open cost? $1,699. This is in line with other companies' pricing, but in my opinion, it's just too much. I guess if your phone will be your main or only computing device, that high price will be worth it to you. Maybe. I still think the foldable form factor is still niche, and in my old fart user case, you know, I'm not as mobile as I used to be, I do most of my computing at home. It wouldn't make sense to plunk down this amount of money. I'd rather spend the money on a desktop computer, which I just did. I just spent around 1300 bucks for a complete setup. Details coming up in the next section. But what do you know? It's the next section. It's tech I'm using. Well, along with that landmark birthday I just celebrated, I did receive some gifts. I ordered myself a Apple Mac Mini and a 27-inch 4K Ultrafine monitor from LG. I figured that the LG Ultrafine would be a safe choice because that's what Apple was selling before they re-entered the monitor market with their own very expensive lineup. As far as the Mac Mini is concerned, I disregarded the advice of countless YouTube channels and decided to pay the Apple tax by upgrading the memory and storage. I got 16 gigs of RAM up from the standard 8 and a 1 terabyte internal hard drive up from the standard and paltry, in my opinion, 256 gigs. I figured these upgrades, though expensive, would help out with the longevity of this computer. I'd like to get at least 10 years out of it. <laughs> hey, don't be so rough on me. Uh, yeah, we'll just have to see about that. Besides, I traded in my 2019 Intel-based MacBook Air for it, whose value put me at even with the base model's price. Now, the original plan was to just use the Apple Magic Keyboard from my old 2015 iMac, but my son surprised me with the birthday gift of a Logitech MX Mechanical Mini for Mac Keyboard. Yep, it's actually called that. Like that long name suggests, it's equipped with mechanical switch keys, which for me is easier on the fingers, and... I kind of like the clacking sound the keys make while typing. Maybe I'm just being nostalgic here, but there's something comforting to me with that sound. The keyboard has other advantages over Apple's keyboard offerings also. The one thing I appreciate the most is that the Logitech is equipped with backlit keys, something I wish Apple would implement on its own Magic keyboards. The backlights are initiated when your fingers hover over the keys, which is a neat trick. Another thing I appreciate is the adjustable legs at the back of the keyboard, which lets you adjust the typing angle, making it much more comfortable to type. It sure beats the almost flat posture of the Apple keyboards, adjustable legs being the other thing I wish Apple would include with their offerings. Battery life is rated for 15 days with backlighting enabled and an unheard of 10 months with that feature disabled. To be honest, I was tempted to order a new Magic Keyboard with Touch ID, but I decided against that because my Apple Watch does just fine with automatically unlocking my computer. Besides, the giant fruit company asked $149 bucks for that keyboard. Wow. 
Yeah, way too much. I will be using my Logitech webcam because the monitor I'm getting doesn't have a built-in camera. The only concern I have with my new purchase is the amount of USB connections. The base model Mac Mini comes with two USB-C type connections and two USB-A types and an HDMI port. I do have a cheap USB hub I can use until deciding which new one to buy in the future. I do have plenty of time to do research because the Mac Mini hasn't even shipped yet and has an expected delivery date of 31 October. My greatest fear is that as soon as I accept delivery of this computer, old Apple will announce upgrades for this very model. As you should know if you listen to this show, a couple of weeks ago I finally received my iPhone 15 Pro Max. Yay! We're still waiting for my wife's phone and that late November delivery date hasn't budged. I think this is ridiculous because of course I ordered that phone at the same time I ordered my own phone. Now I understand that the white color she chose is the most popular one this year, but I'll remind you that I placed the orders on the morning of the first day they were available to pre-order. I've done this in the past and either received the phone on release day or shortly thereafter. If the delivery date for her phone holds, it will be over two months since I placed the order for it. We've received the overpriced case for her phone, though. It came last Thursday. So, what do I think of my new iPhone now that I've had it for a couple of weeks? As I've stated before, it's an iPhone and performs much like the models that preceded it. It's bigger, faster, and the screen is better. It's nice to get rid of the Notch 2. One thing that's a lot better than the previous models I've had is the speakers. They are much louder, which is great for my aging ears, and the stereo effect is much more discernible, making for a better listening experience. Battery life is also much improved compared to my previous iPhone 13 Poor Persons Edition too. I had to charge that particular phone midday just to make it until evening. Even after heavy use, the 15 Pro Max has about 60% of its charge remaining at bedtime. You know, it's nice not having to worry about my phone battery for a change. That's something I haven't experienced since my old Nokia Symbian days. Wow. I wonder if you even know what Symbian was. The only problem I've had with the new phone, and it's a minor one, is with the standby mode. Standby mode is enabled when you place the phone on its side while charging. A selectable screen turns on while well, I chose a clock and the current weather display. When I first received the phone, I could not get it to work, though all the settings were correct. A reboot of the phone fixed that problem, though. I thought that the screen would stay on as long as the conditions were met, but that's not the case. The screen turns off after a bit and turns itself back on when the phone detects motion. An update to iOS is supposedly coming next week that will remedy this, I'm told. This will allow the screen to stay on constantly. You know, I'll probably just leave the screen as it is, though. You know, I fear the OLED screen will suffer burn-in. Entertainment news. Well, the actor's strike is still ongoing, and I believe the two sides are not even talking to each other at this point. Thank goodness a multitude of shows I've watched in the past have recently debuted their new seasons. The reboot of Frasier has arrived, and while I don't think the new series lives up to the old 90s one, at least not yet, it was nice seeing the comeback all the same. So far, virtue signaling and all that goes with it hasn't raised its ugly head, in force anyway. Though there was one character that just had to declare that she was married to a woman. You know, I guess these script writers just can't help themselves. 
I don't know how many movies and television series episodes uh, where the plot is just chugging along smoothly when all of a sudden, and nothing to do with the plot, some character has to either virtue signal, declare their sexuality, or both. Anyway, one of Amazon Prime's video services' original shows, the police drama Bosch, which now lives on Freebie, which is Amazon's ad-supported streaming service, has just started its second season. It's now called Bosch Legacy instead of just Bosch. The writing and acting is still top-notch, as it was in the original. Next was Only Murders in the Building, which is a Hulu exclusive. Its third season is in full swing now. It actually started in August, but I avoided watching any of the show's episodes until now because it's set in the fall and winter, and being that I'm in New York, I like the continuity of the seasons of weather. That and I wasn't sure any shows that I would enjoy would be coming out due to the combined writer's-actor strike. I grew up living the New York apartment life, though my circumstances weren't as affluent as the characters of this show. They reside in an upscale apartment building in Manhattan, well... I resided in a tenement in the Bronx. Even so, I have something in common with the show and an affinity with it. As a young child, I had an aunt who lived in one of these upscale apartment buildings. The brightly lit, wide hallways of the building featured furniture and garbage disposal, in contrast to the smell of urine and radiators that inhabited my old tenement building. I always enjoyed our visits because my aunt served the best snacks and would tell great stories. Finally in this roundup is the series Chucky, based on the movie franchise of the same name. Though this show is full of social agendas, if you do your best to ignore them, it's still pretty entertaining. What are you watching this fall television season? Well, Netflix has raised its subscription prices yet again. My premium subscription will go from $19.99 to $22.99. Didn't we just have a price increase from Netflix recently? This will most likely entice other streaming services to also increase their prices. You know, times are tough, especially economically, and price increases such as these make them that much tougher. I foresee some streaming service trimming for me in the future. Podcast news. It was a quiet week for Podcast Incorporated, with the leading story being YouTube's move into the podcasting space. Most OG podcasters and hosts think this isn't a good development, citing that in order to have your podcast on YouTube, your podcasting host has to strip away any programmatic ads from it. That's so YouTube can insert their own ads into your episodes, my dearies. Which will siphon out any revenue that would normally go to the host. Spotify does something similar, and that's why it, too, is not well liked by the elders of podcasting. To even earn revenue from YouTube, besides having to have a certain amount of subscribers, which includes an estimated 96% of podcasters, you also have to be enrolled in the YouTube Partner Program. On top of that, YouTube has some of the strictest censorship rules. Just one wrong word or complaint and you and your show can be deleted and that's something I'd never want hanging over my head. A recent poll from Voices, which is a voice actor's marketplace, claims that YouTube is the preferred platform for listening to podcasts. Huh? And that's closely followed by Spotify. 
What's surprising is that the older demo seemed to listen on YouTube while the younger Gen Z demo listens on Spotify. It was previously thought that YouTube listeners would skew to the younger listeners, while oldsters, you know, Gen X and millennials, would skew towards Spotify. I don't think this is surprising, though, as younger folk are moving around a lot more than older folk, and right now, it's much more convenient to get both your music and podcasts from Spotify while mobile. My millennial son has been a Spotify subscriber for a long time, like 10 years now, and he listens to both music and podcasts using Spotify. I was a subscriber to Spotify myself, and still would be if I was still working. I found it convenient to have both content on the one service, but what really kept me on Spotify was its superior music catalog. As I've said in the past, I spent most of my misguided youth overseas while serving in the military, so my musical taste doesn't line up with the U.S. public's. So sometimes I couldn't find certain genres or artists on services like Apple and Pandora, for example. The only service I used in the past that was comparable to Spotify was the old Nokia music service, I think it was called Ovi Music. It only cost $4.99 per month. Oh, what could have been if Nokia and its Ovi services had survived? I don't listen to music as much as I used to, so the seven or so dollars I was paying monthly to Spotify was just a waste. Now bear in mind this survey was taken amongst a little over 1,000 people, so there's that. Another survey, this time from ACAST, has found that podcasters are the most trusted media personalities among consumers. This just goes to show how horrible legacy media has gotten these days, with major news organizations seemingly just parroting what they're fed by the government. Reporters don't seem to just report the facts these days. They infuse their ideology into all the stories they cover. Instead of fact-driven reporting, we get opinion pieces being reported as news. It's no wonder the public has lost its trust in legacy media, which translates to decreasing audience numbers. News services used to be considered a public service, but now they're just a way to make money for the host corporation. The way these organizations make that money is by advertising, which affects the way they report things, fearful that one wrong thing could cause them to lose their ad revenue. Besides ads, billionaires like Bill Gates, George Soros, and others pipe money into these outlets along with governments and their lackey non-government organizations, who are in turn funded by the same government. To fight back, legacy media has enlisted so-called fact-checkers and organizations such as NewsGuard, who gets funds from the DOD, DHS, and others. They'll usually team up with shady operations like Barometer, who appeared out of nowhere last year, funded by anonymous venture capitalists, which are most likely fronts for intelligence agencies. They'll be coming after podcasts next and coming hard. At least we have the Alternative Podcast Index and Podcasting 2.0 compliant listening apps for now, but eventually the powers that be will get to them too. That's why you're seeing the attempt by Google, Spotify, and others to get rid of the RSS feed, which is the basic way podcasts are distributed. They've already started this first by going after show hosts like Alex Jones, for example. Next, they'll get corporations to stop advertising on targeted shows. Eventually, they'll go after podcast hosting services, and if all fails, they'll go after internet providers. 
Unfortunately, with election season soon upon us, expect a coordinated crackdown on all of the above, especially those who don't go along with the current government-approved narrative. Finally, for podcasting news, we got some stats for you. Spotify and Spotify-owned Megaphone podcast hosting services have seen the most growth this month amongst podcasters switching hosts, picking up 231 new shows. ACAST saw a gain of 53 shows. Captivate, which I used to use, was up 25 shows. Red Circle, which this show is currently hosted on, Substack and Audio Means, a company I've never heard of before, all saw double-digit gains. The big losers were Spreaker, down 30 shows, Buzzsprout, who I started out with, was down 37, and the once mighty Omni lost 40. Libsyn was down 41, and I can't see them surviving long-term, and SoundCloud was the biggest loser at minus 59 shows. Spotify is free, so of course they'd see the biggest gains, while SoundCloud's main business is music, so their numbers fluctuate quite a bit. I believe Spreaker just went to the free model, so give them some time, while Buzzsprout, who used to be the value leader, has found themselves priced out by the competition. Omni used to be the top pro host, but Megaphone has eaten their lunch, and Libsyn, which was one of the first podcast hosting services, well, it's just a financial mess. These days, you have to offer more than just hosting services. You need to provide statistics and have an easy-to-use interface and throw in other benefits to gain shows if you're a paid service. Libsyn charges by the kilobyte of storage and becomes very expensive after a while. So, have you found all this interesting? Hey, wake up! Sorry to bore you. Oh, can you keep a secret? RE20 is in there of that microphone is pending. Well, I don't have a story nor a rant for you this week. Being that I just completed yet another trip around the sun, I've been looking back on my previous trips, contemplating the good things and especially the mistakes I've made over the years. I've had my share of regrets, but I've come to the conclusion that none of it matters because I'm powerless to change any of it. Well, that music is playing once again, and now I'm just about finished running my mouth for another week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed making it for you. If you like what you heard, you can make a donation using the link in the show notes. Any and all donations will be greatly appreciated. You can always reach me at OFNTpodcast at gmail.com, and that's if you're so inclined. I'd enjoy hearing from you. Remember, don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. Hey, in honor of my recent birthday, why don't you give me the gift of getting off my lawn? Stay skeptical. I'm out. See ya.